because the theme of this retreat is the integration of love and wisdom. And we've been doing a lot of practice, actually, in uh, the loving-kindness practices of metta, compassion, equanimity, and also speaking about it in Dharma talks. I wanted to offer another wisdom Dharma talk so that that could be integrated into our understanding of the Dharma. And sometimes these wisdom talks, uh, like the one on the Four Noble Truths, are somewhat heady and they're hard to take in because they're they're not so much coming from a heart space, but from an understanding life as it is space. So this evening I'd like to speak about impermanence. And it's one of what we call the right views of the Dharma. It's included in the um, three kind of right views of uh, impermanence, which is anicca, Uh, anatta, which is the not-self characteristic, and dukkha, which I spoke about uh, in the Four Noble Truths. So I want to start out by this beautiful quote by Mr. Goenka. He was a very renowned uh, Dharma teacher, a lay person, a very powerful teacher, and his teaching continues to be strong with a lot of people all over the world. He said, Real wisdom is recognizing and accepting that every experience is impermanent. With this insight, you will not be overwhelmed by the ups and downs. And when you are able to maintain inner balance, you can choose to act in ways that create happiness for yourself and others. Living each moment happily with an equanimous mind you will surely progress towards the ultimate goal of liberation from all suffering. So I find that this kind of brings together everything that we've been um, receiving and trying to integrate into our lives, these understandings, these experiences, while we've been here together. So this is about the infinite immensity of impermanence, the river of life, the river of change. When I was in my 20s, maybe like many of you, I was inspired by the book by Hermann Hesse called Siddhartha. How many of you have read that? Yeah, many. It's been a long time that I've read that. And no, my name did not come from that book (laughs) because there's a character in that book, Kamala, right? So Manindra gave me that name, my first teacher, and, and that's an Indian, an Indian name. And um, So he asked me when I first met him if I wanted to become a Buddhist. So I thought, well, why not? You know, why? I'm a Catholic, and maybe I won't take any chances, I'll become a Buddhist too. <laughs> so, so he gave me that name. And it means like a lotus blossom or something like that. So, so much of the book I remember was, it was just a beautiful book for me. And uh, the part that remains was the image about the river. 
Now you know how sometimes our memory makes something different out of what we remembered. (laughs) But the image about the river really brought about to me that whole understanding of impermanence where um, this person was sitting next to the river and was just listening to the flow of everything that was happening. And through that there was a lot of teaching through just sitting next to the river and really being with that flow of life. And in a way, that's what we do when we're here on retreat. You know, we're, we're, we're sitting here in our seat, but we're sit, seeing and experiencing the flow of life, all the memories of the past, all the present moment experience, and maybe all the futures that have yet to come that probably won't come the way we think they're coming uh, when we think of the future. And yet, you know, the future is there somehow. We, we are making the future with our present moment intentions and how we live them out. So the Buddha or the Buddha-to-be, that image sitting next to the river, taking in every sense door, and the teaching of impermanence with taking in the experiences of every sense door which I've been trying to impart to you during this week, that all that exists really in the life of a human being in the mind. When you look at it, it it kind of boils down to these five sense experiences of the body and the one of the mind, the mind door. So when I remember that story, somehow it, it brought me to the experience of, that I had recently. Well, uh, just almost a year ago, uh, when I took some time off. Some of you know that I took a, a sabbatical last year. It was an, what I call an almost sabbatical <laughs> because I did uh, sort of have to tr- teach three retreats because I couldn't get out of them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that was fine. And I, I had wanted for a long time to do this Camino de Santiago in Spain, you know, where you kind of walk across Spain, or there's different Caminos, really, through Portugal, from the south, from the north, from different countries, too, from Switzerland, from the United Kingdom. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to fulfill my wishes this time, and it was a really important time for me to do it, as I had the time, and the conditions were coming together. So I made the decision... And a friend of mine, uh, who's a nun, we decided to go together, and we only had two weeks. So we, d- we knew where to start from, a place called Lyon, and from Lyon to uh, where we were going, to the coastline of northern Spain, the, uh, the Santiago is the name of the city, is about 200 miles. You If you keep a steady pace, you're supposed to be able to walk about 100 miles a week. And so that's what our goal was. It was pretty rough sometimes, um, physically for me. I'm used to walking, but not like 20 miles a day. And that's what we had to do to get there, to walk about 20 miles a day. Sometimes it was a little less, sometimes a little more. There was a lot of countryside we went through, and a lot of woods and forests and We went along a lot of rivers because that's the way the old Camino went along. It it went uh, on the side of rivers. 
This is a, a walk uh, that has been done for a thousand years. So it's really, it, you really feel the worn outness of you know, what you're walking on and that so many people walk that way. Um, there were churches you know, that were built around it or for it for the, for the pilgrims, peregrinos like myself, and um, so you feel the ancientness of it and the support of that ancientness. And it, um, just coincidentally, you know, I, I really love St. Francis of Assisi, and it was the 800th anniversary of his pilgrimage on the same walk. So it really felt wonderful to, to go on the walk like that, kind of behind him or him before me. So we followed the natural flowing rivers a lot and walked through um, a lot of woods. In, it's the, called the French route because it starts from France, although we didn't start from there. There were many bridges to cross, and that was so metaphorical for me at the time in my life. You know, so many bridges to cross. And some of them didn't have bridges, so we had to just have really sure footing on on rocks and um, pieces of wood across the rivers. So my good companion, who had hiked in the Himalayas, uh, was somebody who really urged me on when I couldn't go anymore sometimes. Or, you know, we would stop for coffee someplace and um, have all the wonderful things that the Spanish have, the breads and the cheeses and everything. And um, when I wouldn't want to keep going, (laughs) then she'd urge me on and she would say, turn around and look where you came from. And she she would show me like there were ranges that we went over during that day. And she said, you walked that far. And I would be astonished And she said, you only have to walk a little bit more to get to the next little place that we were staying at. So now when it's kind of a hard time for me, she says, Kamala, you walked through half of Spain. You're going to be able to do this. You know, whatever it is that I think I can't do. So it was wonderful. It was um, difficult in many ways, at at many levels, inwardly and outwardly, but it was really fulfilling. It was very, very rewarding for me. It was a a really good decision for me. So as we were walking that, a lot of the, the sense of impermanence came to me. The concept of time doesn't exist, you know, when you're you're just trudging along and just and you're just thinking of the next step. Can you just make the next step? So breathing in the sense of the bark and the leaves as I was just walking along step by step, just smelling. You know, sometimes it would just be just smelling. And my friend is a is kind of a botanist and she would start telling me what they what the words were in Latin and everything. And I finally said, I don't want to know anything about that flower or that I just want to see it and smell it and sense it. So no no words. So it was just that, just smelling, just sensations, just seeing, just hearing. 
it was really um, a world of simplicity for me. Smelling the bark, the leaves, the damp soil, and the refinement of smells that happens when you're not trying to figure anything out, like where did it come from, or is it a weed, or is it really, you know, um, a flower of that place. Just sensing. When the rain would fall, we walked through a place, uh, most of our walk was through this kind of province called Galicia, and um, they call it the greenest place on earth. (laughs) They call it that because it, it really rains a lot there. So there was a lot of raindrops on, on my face and on my hands and um, on my raincoat and umbrella. And I could just hearing, hearing, hearing and feeling the coldness, coolness, coolness, warmth, warmth, feeling the water element on me like that and the pulsingness of it. You know, just the pulsing of life through the raindrops. It was so simple. And the impermanence of it was, was more like letting me know that every moment is new rather than it's all going away. You know how you learn that about impermanence too? Like it's just a new raindrop. It's just a new wind. It isn't about things disappearing, but it can be. But it's about things arriving as well. So just seeing also, taking in shapes and form and color with, with the eyes and not really needing to know that what was the name of that mountain in way, way in the, in the beyond or what was the name of a flower, just, just seeing, that's all. Maybe just appreciating, noticing the mind just hearing the river flowing over the rocks and um, the debris in the water, the rustling, the rushing, the roaring of little waterfalls that we came across. So it was every moment of changing, changing of hearing, changing of seeing, changing of smelling, changing of touching, and then seeing the mind's reaction the changing of all that to it. It was very, very flowing, and I really felt that I could just be in that impermanence and not resist it at all. And that was a really major, major medicine for me at that time, to just be able to to do that and not fight that things were changing. You know, it's, That's what's so wonderful about being in a place like this. So listening deeply to the teachings of the Camino and the forests and the rivers that were giving those teachings, hearing and seeing the moving water, the energy systems of the currents of water and the currents of air, all of that, the bubbles on the water, the constant changes in temperature. So just as I could easily open my heart and mind to the naturalness of all of that, the flowing river moving through the course it made for itself and evaporating along the way, kind of seeing a bigger picture, noticing that here's the rain, the sunshine comes, it evaporates, it feels humid, the clouds form, it falls on the ocean, it comes back, you know, 
just the whole cycle wasn't just moment to moment. Just saw the immensity of it also. So I could easily open my heart to the nature of the similar processes going on inside the, the, the kind of infinity of that movement and the immensity of what was going on in, in my life as a whole. And just being able to be with it and, and not even like try to accept it, but it just, it's just flowing. You don't have any choice. It's not like, may I accept this moment? It's just like you do. It's just like it happens. And it, there, there isn't something that you're trying to make happen or not happen. You just feel in the flow of life. Um, like I mentioned that D.H. Lawrence, it's not I, but the wind that blows through me. It's, you just feel part of nature. So here's something that, you know, you all know David White? He's a wonderful poet, yeah? David White. um, And he talks a lot about nature. So he wrote almost a whole book about this Camino de Santiago. So this is his part of his poem called Camino. The way forward, the way between things, the way already walked before you, the path disappearing and reappearing, even as the ground gave way beneath you. The brief grief, apparent only in the moment of forgetting where you are. Then the river, the mountain, the lifting song of the skylark, inviting you over the rain-filled pass when your legs had given up. Now that's how it felt. You know, just, you would feel like stopping, but then the skylarks would come and they'd say, keep going, you know, in their beautiful sounds. So in recent years I've been tuning into the immensity and infinity of time that is the process of being human in this endless repeating cycle of birth and death and life in between and rebirth again. And if, if you're not a, a, a person who thinks that way about, you know, that this is a continuation, just an infinite continuation. Um, as Manindra, our teacher, says, you may not believe it, but it's true. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I tend to understand it sort of intuitively that when one moment of consciousness ends it hooks up to another one you know so it's pretty infinite and maybe even beyond this body so this is called samsara this infinite cycle one definition is perpetually wandering through states of existence the endless cycle of eternally becoming birth Life's changes, death, rebirth. You can think of it as just one life, you know, birth, infanthood, adolescence, adulthood, elder years. Just perpetually wandering, even through one life. So I've been reflecting how long has this been flowing on and on since time immemorial, 
the infinite immensity of impermanence, all the joys and the sorrows and the pains and the pleasures. You know, just taking it out of a little um, capsule of my life and looking at it in a bigger way. So realizing this kind of more deeply, and it has been through the years, it has come up for me a lot, but especially, I think, because of the age I'm at and circumstances that happen to us at certain ages. So it's given me an increased sense of urgency. And some of you have it. You, you have that spiritual urgency, even though maybe there's nothing you know, so sort of very bad happening in your life that you want to get free from it. But just because of seeing this so deeply there's this samvega, which is called spiritual urgency. That's the word in Pali, samvega. It's a sense of urgency to escape the rounds of wandering through this endless cycle. The cycle that's caused by craving, ignorance, delusion, that's so pervasive. So, one of our teachers says, this has to be balanced with what is called pasada, a clarity, a serene confidence that allows one to proceed confidently towards the goal of liberation without lapsing into despair. So we need the opening into understanding the Four Noble Truths and to take that in, but to be able to continue to move through our life in some kind of balance so we're not despairing about it. So I, as I said in when I spoke about the Four Noble Truths, I found it liberating. I found it really acknowledging of the actual experience of being human rather than denying it. It was just acknowledging and confirming my own experience of it. So when I was younger, when I'd listened to this kind of a, um, these kind of what they call wisdom talks, it was beyond my capacity to take it in, to like, you know, I'd sit there and say, whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> someday I'll really understand that. When I started on this path, I was in my 20s and um, into survival more than anything else, but I was, I really let it come in and, and just kind of settle in my heart, and when experiences came to verify what I had heard, it would hook up with what I had heard kind of over and over again. So I hope that's also so for some of you that are more new to the Dharma. You can just listen and, and see how, give it a chance to hook up later in your experience. The Buddha said that there is no discoverable beginning, just this changing nature at every level. I'm quoting him there. And in the ancient suttas, the suttas are the words of the Buddha. I'm going to read some of them to you. It gives us a sense of what is beyond the concept of what we think is time in understanding the infinity of this cycle of birth and the life in between and death over and over and over again. So, This is from the suttas. Um, 
And all you have to do is, is go look up impermanence Buddhist studies and you'll find these suttas. He gave this, these particular suttas about 159 times, so you're bound to look up with one of them. These particular ones about impermanence. A Brahmin asked the Buddha, how many eons have elapsed and gone by in terms of wandering in this cycle of samsara? A Brahmin is kind of an upper-class person in, in India. Is it possible to give a simile, he asked the Buddha. So before I give an answer, the answer, I want to explain in Buddhist terms what an eon is. An eon is a long, long time. In Buddhist cosmology, an eon is one kalpa, and the Buddha is talking about many eons here, and one kalpa is 4.32 billion years. That, that's one kalpa. In astronomy, one eon is 100,000 million years. So anyway, that's beyond my comprehension, but it's so long. So the Buddha answered, It is possible to give a simile, the Blessed One said. Consider the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. The eons that have elapsed and gone by are even more numerous than that. It is not easy to count them and say that they are so many eons, so many hundreds or thousands, hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because, Brahman, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. Isn't it time enough to be liberated from them? (laughs) So on another occasion, there were several of these similes. I'm just giving a few. He said, It is not easy, bhikkhus, to find when he was talking to his monks, it's not easy, bhikkhus, to find a being who in this long course has not previously been your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough, isn't it, to be liberated from them. And the last one talking to the bhikkhus again. This samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beginnings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. What do you think, bhikkhus, which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, and separated from the agreeable? Which is more, this or the water in the four great oceans? Basically, what's more, your tears or the water in the four great oceans? And the bhikkhus, his monks, replied, As we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing, because of being united with disagreeable people, separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. So the Buddha said, Good bhikkhus, it is good that you understand the Dhamma. So the fluctuations, this is just to show you how long it's been going on. 
you know, how long has this been going on? The fluctuations of just one life, the birth of a life, the stages of infancy, childhood, the teen years, early and later adulthood, aging into elderhood, through health and sickness, through dying and death, all the happiness and sorrow, all the gain and loss really slips through our fingers, just like the water of a river when we try to pick it up. It just slips through our fingers. The river and the river of life keeps flowing on. It doesn't stop. So when I was in my 20s, the end of the river was not something I thought about, but uh, I was too busy trying to survive. But now, I just turned 67, and I have, you know, there are some people I know that passed away in their 70s. For 20 years, I was a counselor for the cemetery and mortuary of, on the island of where I live. So I've been through with a lot of people and a lot of families who have passed away. One, my teacher, my main teacher, Upandita, said, when you worked there, it was like you were in a monastery. And the, from the teaching of death that I received, death and dying, just being there. But even so, even so I didn't think about the end of the river then, I did have a lot of interest in um, knowing about the Dharma, a sense of urgency. I really felt when I was in my 20s and what put me on this path. So now most of the river of my life is behind me, probably. And, you know, if I lived 20 years more, that would be good. You know, I would be 87. My mother died at 89. But you know, 20 years ago was just like that. 20 years ago, I started teaching here, and it was like yesterday that I started teaching here. So, wow, that can go by really quick. And what am I doing with my life? How am I using my life? And, and uh, the circumstances that occur, how am I using them for growth? So as I delve into the Dhamma, that reflection is coming to me a lot, the preciousness of this human birth, a lot. And and a lot of you have talked about it um, during our time together here, like, how are we doing this? And I I don't mean to, you know, to put a fire underneath your butt about (laughs) doing your Dharma work more, but... um, don't you remember when we were young, when those of us, a lot of us here when we were young were in the Dharma already, right? Our hair was on fire with the Dharma. It was like we were really interested in, and then kind of life and the tiredness took over. And so those days are gone. So I really just have to remind myself about using my life in, in, a, in a way that kind of is more leading onward leading. So every year I take some time of personal retreat. And um, this last November I took uh, those, that time in New Zealand, five weeks of time having some solitude and time alone. And then um, the year before that I went to the birthplace of the Buddha and did a month of practice in Lumbini. And it was, it was a very strict um, retreat then. 
and I did not bring any reading material, which is n- not something you do there. You don't read at all. That, that was the kind of retreat it was. But I did bring some words of advice by a Tibetan teacher that I really um, revere a lot. I never met him, but his teachings are very strong for me, and that's Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. And so these are the words that inspired me every day. And I hope that um, I can really um, channel the purity and strength of, of his mind to you. So this is what I read every day to, to help me keep going. Ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being. How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do? How many of those who start continue? How many of those who continue attain ultimate realization? Indeed, those who attain ultimate realization compared to those who do not are as few as the stars you can see at daybreak. As long as you fail to recognize the true value of human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. When life comes all too soon to its inevitable end, you will not have achieved anything worthwhile at all. But once you really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring you, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think that you can first finish all your work and then retire to spend the later stages of your life practicing the Dharma. Can you be certain that you will live that long? Does death not strike the young? as well as the old. No matter what you are doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. So, that's really a strong admonition. I wouldn't be able to say those words to you, but I can channel them from Dilgo Kinsi Rinpoche. So the Pali word for this infinity and immeasurability is anicca. We, we talked about dukkha the other, the other evening. This is the anicca part of those three wisdoms. Most, if not all of you, are familiar with that word. The subtleties of it include the moment-to-moment arising, becoming different, becoming otherwise, disappearing, never staying the same, subject to change, cessation of every moment. In a bigger way, it's realized as the continual flow, flowing onness of life. So moment to moment, there is direct experience of it, but in a bigger way, in a conceptual way, you can understand the continual flowing onness of life. It's like a beginningless, endless river emerging from innumerable conditions, 
fluxing, changing, moving, evaporating into different forms, like the rain, the humidity, uh, falling and then going back up and falling down again, recycling back to earth another form in another form. And that's how it is with this human body and mind as well. So there is a depth we can go to with this teaching from nature, just watching nature this way. This is um, beautiful from, from Sogyal Rinpoche. There would be no chance at all of getting to know death if it happened only once. But fortunately, life is nothing but a continual dance of birth and death, a dance of change. Every time I hear the rush of a mountain stream or waves crashing on the shore or my own heartbeat, I hear the sound of impermanence. These changes, these small deaths, are our living links with death. They are death's, death's pulses, death's heartbeat, prompting us to let go of all the things we cling to. So there, there's a depth to that, but sometimes, and we hear it, we feel it, we know it when we're here, and we're just having this simple life. So we can take in nature that way, or we can get blinded and entranced by the beauty of nature. Like some of you mentioned when you first came, you know, it's just like, oh, this is just, it's, it's awe-inspiring. And we just kind of want to take in more of the trees and more of the... And we get lost in the kind of the, the image, of the images that appear to us. And um, it's very different from seeing it in a moment-to-moment view. I love this poem by Kenneth Rexroth. Um, Another Spring, it's called... So pay attention and you can hear their profound anicca in this, these ordinary words. The seasons revolve and the years change with no assistance or supervision. The moon, without taking thought, moves in its cycle, full, crescent, and full again. The white moon enters the heart of the river, The air is drugged with azalea blossom scents. Deep in the night, a pine cone falls. A campfire dies out in the empty mountains. The sharp stars flicker in the tremulous branches. But here we lie, entranced by the starlit water and moments that we think should each last forever, slide unconsciously by us like water. So we, we tend to see the permanence in all of that when we're entranced by it instead of the impermanence. So we may say it in different ways, but we come to this practice to understand the nature of life more deeply. Yeah, we want to know, you know, what are the parts that uplift us and all of that. But we learn that a lot 
So somebody's got to give the Four Noble Truths. (laughs) Somebody has to talk about dukkha and the other side, that those are the wisdom teachings of the Buddha. To experience in a way that liberates our minds and hearts from the ignorance and delusion of um, that we tend to carry around us, in us. So we practice to understand deeply the causes of suffering so that when we see what causes suffering, when it comes up, we can notice what's happening and we can either ameliorate it, weaken it, and eventually what happens is it gets totally uprooted. So in the stages of insight and along this path and in the... Um, the different levels of enlightenment, each of those, greed, hatred, and delusion, get uh, uprooted bit by bit by bit. And so in the final stage of enlightenment, there's a, a total absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So what remains is wisdom, basically wisdom and love. So we learn that clinging to what changes and cannot last forever brings a lot of pain. We're learning that to try to control what is constantly changing cannot bring happiness. It just brings confusion and pain. Of course we can enjoy the happiness when it's there. Um, And then it leaves. And the joy doesn't have to leave It can just be the enjoyment of knowing the truth of life. In one of the last retreats um, last year that I taught, a yogi gave me this quote, said was from Alan Watts. I did look it up and I couldn't find this quote from Alan Watts. But reading his other quotes, it seems like it's the mind of Alan Watts here. (laughs) From the moment we're born, we're in a free fall. It doesn't help to hold on to anything or everything, which is also falling with you. (laughs) So we're going to hit sometime, you know, but maybe really there's another metaphor. I love this one that Joseph Goldstein always gives, um, I used to, is that it's doing this, this practice is like, you know, taking our parachutes and going up on a plane and then jumping out, right? And so you you learn how to do all this and you know that, okay, you've got two parachutes, you've got uh, the one and the backup one. Mm -hmm. And so you you jump out and you pull the cord and you're falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. And it's not opening. The parachute is not opening. So you pull the other cord Mm -hmm. And you're falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. And that parachute is not opening. So everything that you've tried to, you know, hold on to or that's kind of making you safe is not working. So you just finally surrender to the falling and falling and falling and falling. And you realize that through the experiential understanding of that, that there's no ground to hit because it's really all empty. I mean, that's a teaching of anatta. And it just keeps happening. It just keeps happening. 
So we learn to kind of fall more gracefully into life because we become more in alignment with how it is. So we learn to use our energy to simply open to how it is instead of to kind of push away how it is or to find other alternatives that would work, you know, in a more easeful way for us. And we can do that, but in time we finally need to open to how it is. The teaching on Anicca and the way to this profound experiential understanding of it is something that the Buddha pointed out is highly important. Because from the teaching of Anicca, the teaching of Dukkha can come from that understanding of the impermanence. Um, Because you can't really find anything that's going to give you lasting satisfaction because everything's changing all the time. This is dukkha. The Buddha said, better a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall than to live out a century yet not perceive their rise and fall of every moment. So this experiential understanding is so profound and the, the whole guidance in Vipassana is towards that experiential understanding. We may say a lot of words to sort of encourage you to get there or to point the way, but it's the experience that really liberates the mind, You're, the experience that happens in your own mind and heart. So it's this incessant, mind-boggling, morphing and dissolving the various formations that come and go in the mind, moving, transient nature, not just in the mind, but in the body. We explore this in all the four foundations of mindfulness, the body, the feelings, the objects of the mind, consciousness itself. It's so transformative because it brings about that insight I just talked about into dukkha, that there's no ultimate or lasting satisfaction anywhere. There is satisfaction, but it still doesn't last. This is dukkha. So anicca can lead to dukkha, and anicca can also lead to anatta that not-self understanding. Because in each moment, there is no core or solidity found in each moment. Not in any one moment of experience or any moments that are combined. Everything that is seen uh, very intimately is seen in its fluctuating, dissolving moment. And so we, we kind of lose that attachment to a sense of self when the mind begins to see this. That understanding about anicca is really difficult to come by. It takes a lot of continuity of mindfulness to understand that experientially. But as 
Manindra says, it's true whether you believe it or not. (laughs) And I'm not talking from theory, from my own experience. Interestingly, um, described in the Dhamma books, the characteristic of dukkha is the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of uh, of nature, of the nature that's happening within. The incessant origination and dissolution, and that's what we see in our practice. The Buddha said again to some of his bhikkhus, form is impermanent. The cause and condition for the arising of form is also impermanent. As form has originated from what is impermanent, how could it be permanent? And then he goes on to say the same thing about other conditions and causes. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. The cause and causes and conditions for all these arisings are also impermanent. So this is what the mind sees over and over and over again. We begin to live in alignment with that truth instead of resisting it or kind of um, intellectualizing it. It's more of a real intimate experience. It gives us the opportunity when we really take the instructions in and really follow the instructions. It really gives us an opportunity to see that closely, very, very closely. So here, listening to the flow of the river of change, just as we sit here, there is so much that is experienced. So what happened? You know, where is that grief moment that you had yesterday or that happy moment that you had Maybe you had one this morning, it's gone. Or that moment of even that realization, that that deep realization that you had maybe at the last retreat. It's already made its mark on the wisdom of the mind, but that's gone. That moment of realization is gone. And based on that moment, there are new, deeper realizations that will come. So we can't hang on to the past And, you know, if if we do that, then we're just forever. There's so many people that come across my path are still so hung up on realizations they had 20 years ago, so they can't move on. And there's there's more to understand. It's That is kind of infinite in itself, too. So wherever you are, you're still growing. I'm still growing, too, along with you. So listening to the flow of the river is what we do here. It's really taking in every moment and experiencing that change. And it will, it will have its mark of wisdom in our hearts and our minds, even if we can't um, articulate it. There are so many people Manindra told me about the people that he taught in India that um, realize deeply the Four Noble Truths and have really gotten free in their minds to various degrees that are simple householders like most of ourselves. 
You know, they're not monks or nuns. They're people like us who aren't going to be in a monastery, probably most of us aren't, um, for the rest of our lives or even part of our lives. But Manindra always gave me the encouragement that we all have the capacity to be liberated. And, you know, introduced me to a few of the people in the neighborhood where he lived in Calcutta whose minds were so pure, you know, and they, they were simple workers or taxi drivers or something, but just beautiful, beautiful people lived very well in their lives. And, you know, the level of greed, hatred, and delusion was so thin. That was still a little bit there because they weren't fully, you know, fully enlightened, but very beautiful, very um, very well able to take care of themselves. So there, there are different, um, there are different ways that we can look at this. Sometimes you think, oh, you you got to be in the Dharma a long time, or you know, somebody who does retreats so often. There, there are people that come to retreat and boom, they're like right there. And a lot of it's because they just have a naturally good heart anyway. So it's not like it's this constant striving that we have to do. And I'll talk more tomorrow in the Eightfold Noble Path about the steps we can take in our daily life to prepare that ground. So Manindra used to say to me, it's the law, like I was saying, surrender to the law the naturalness of the appearing and the dissolving and the changing of every moment is happening. Really get close to it. Have that deep confidence and accept it. Adimoka is surrendering to that law. It's that deep confidence that we can have. Have, have any of you read Knee Deep in, Greece, Greep, uh, Knee Deep in Grace about Deepama? She was Manindra's student. And she surpassed Manindra in, in her attainment of the Dhamma, she, in, her attain, in her purification of her mind and her heart. And Manindra was so proud of that. And that was uh, his relative, actually, Deepa, Deepa Mahabharua. So and she was an amazing woman, a simple housewife with not much education. And her heart and mind was so clean and pure. A real inspiration to me. And that was my inspiration. Somebody that Manindra held up to me. It's like, this, this, you could be that. You know, you, you can go towards that. So for me, I'm, my um, understanding about my own trajectory in life is, it's not the monastery. I've been to the monastery and ordained as a nun twice, but that's not where my purification is majorly going to take place. It's in life, through the experiences I have in life. So, being with the present moment is is where it's at. And and like I've been relaying to you from the teachings of Utejaniya, awareness brings us into the present moment, which brings the wisdom which actually liberates the mind. So if we can follow the the admonition of the Buddha, let there be nothing behind you, 
leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle, if we can be with every present moment, even though the past is being reviewed, we bring that into the present moment and know that that's happening. So that that doesn't mean we don't think of the past. It just means that we know that this is happening in this moment. Or when we're looking into the future, we know, okay, planning, futurizing. We know that's happening in this moment. So I just wanted to expand that understanding a little bit. So finally, the flowing onness of the river teaches us not to resist this truth. And it's not that we stop living meaningfully, but our life becomes more skillful and becomes more meaningful. Our speech, we we tend to like really be careful. So many of you have talked about just how much you want to look at your speech and behavior in a deeper way. And I know you're already deep in the Dharma and, and you're looking to even refine it more. So what happens is the preciousness of life becomes sort of like the number one thing for us. And the importance of being kind is also there, just along with that preciousness of life. Letting go of what isn't kind to ourselves and to others. And, you know, understanding what isn't kind and and really taking a look at that, our habit patterns. Practicing that deep kind of renunciation, which, as Suzuki Roshi says, true renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but knowing that they go away. It's like really knowing impermanence. So somebody wrote a note about you know, I'm, I'm not going to be in a monastery. I have attachment. I want a relationship. You know, this is my life. This is how it is. So you don't have to give any of that up. It's like just understanding that renunciation doesn't mean, doesn't mean that we have to have a few things and it can make life simpler or not have a partner. It just means that some of those things don't last. Or they change. They may last through a long period of time. But through that time, there's changes in relationships. In, through death, we have you know, loss. All of that. So from the Diamond Sutra, this becomes really understandable to us. A lot of you have heard this already. Thus shall ye think of all this fleeting world a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. When you think about just walking here before you sat down, it's just a dream, isn't it? And this here now will become a dream. It's just all going to disappear And it's happening in this moment, every moment. Just a moment ago when I said a few other words, it's gone. It's all gone. Are we paying attention? So I just want to bring it back to something every day. And this is from Achan Shah from the monastery I was at.
So I, I just have so much um, gratitude for being held in that tradition. And so I, I just I say this with a lot of reverence to uh, Achan Shah. The leaves will always fall. Every day or two, the open grounds and walkways of the monastery must be swept clear of the leaves that fall. The monks come together, team up, and with long-handled bamboo brooms sweep like a dust storm, clearing all the leaves in their path. Sweeping is so satisfying. All the while, the forest continues to give its teachings. The leaves fall, the monks sweep, and yet even while the sweeping continues and the near end of a long path is being cleared, the monks look back and see a new scattering of leaves already starting to cover their work. Our lives are like the breath, like the growing and falling leaves, says Achan Shah. When we can really understand about falling leaves, we can sweep the paths every day and have great happiness in our lives on this changing earth. So as they will, let's just notice that the words dissolve. We can have a bit of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.